This is Sunday School for Misfits, hosted by me, Dr. Selena Stone, a podcast where we, the Misfits, explore the good, the bad, and the questionable of our church experiences and the Christian beliefs and perspectives that we were taught. Welcome and thank you for listening. Well, hello there, everyone, and thank you for coming back for episode two. Well done, you survived the first one. And uh, it's really great to be back again recording for you this week. What I'm going to be doing in the first 10 weeks of this kind of first season between now and Christmas is I want to take on some of the complex and sometimes contradictory ideas that we find in the Bible and particularly in our theology. So not just like what's actually written in the Bible, but the beliefs that we develop based on what the Bible says. Because I feel like most of the time, we might even like see some of this stuff and then it just gets pushed under the carpet or we're kind of told it's not that important. But I'm really of the opinion that some of these so-called small contradictions or difficult things to understand are really what trip us up in the long term. Like this is for me, at least that was my experience, that I had all these niggling things that I just thought this doesn't go together. This, this logic doesn't make sense. And I thought that I should just suppress them and pretend that everything was fine. But then when life happens, all those little niggling things that you kind of don't want to take seriously when you're, when the worship team is doing a really good job and you're feeling like you belong, all of that stuff then becomes quite serious and you can't really avoid it anymore. And so I want to begin by talking about God But what I want to do in talking about God is reflect a little bit on the challenges I've found that I think some of you might also have found in the way that we talk about God, the way that we learn about God. And I'm going to begin today by talking particularly about this idea of God the Father. And I entitled this episode, God Must Be the Worst Father in the World, (laughs) which I'm sure some of you must have been like, what kind of heresy? is this. And you'll uh, hopefully, you know, you'll get to know my sense of humor. But I also am wanting to provoke us to really think about what language we use and what it sets up for us in terms of expectations. Because this idea of God as our father is one of the first lessons that many of us learn. And particularly the idea that God is that God loves us. It's the most basic of Sunday school themes. And, And this is embedded in us when we're children. And the hope is that I think, I imagine the Sunday school teachers can tell me that you will hold on to this truth and it will grow in your heart as you grow as an adult. You will hold on to this idea when life gets really complicated and you can't figure out what's going on, that this idea that God loves you will be enough to sustain you through all of the things that life might throw at you. And as a child for me, this was a really profound and beautiful idea I think about myself as a little girl, 13 years old, sitting at the back of church and you're not, you're not really important when you're a kid, especially when you're like a little black girl from the inner city. In the scheme of things in the world, you're not really anywhere near the top in terms of importance. But for me, I never grew up with this feeling of inferiority. I never grew up feeling like because I was a girl or a woman, I was going to be, I was not as important as men. I didn't grow up thinking my race was a problem. I didn't grow up thinking that, you know, where I grew up was a problem. I grew up with such a strong sense of being loved by God, which was very much also linked in with 
the affirming family that I grew up in and the fact that I grew up in a home that was loving and nurturing. So this all really helped me, I think, to have a sense of self that was very much rooted in God loving me, but also my parents loving me, my community loving me. I was a child who was well looked after. And there are, of course, many people, some of you listening now, for whom this hasn't been the case. If you're made to feel unlovable by your parents, if they're around, or by family or friends, it can seem, I imagine, unbelievable that God loves you. And I can, I can, and I, and so I can imagine also, though, that for some people who grow up in more complicated circumstances, the idea of a loving God can fill a gap that might be left by a dad who's not around or might be useless or... Or a parent, for example, who's not there. Like that, that can fill a kind of emotional gap for you when we speak about God as father. But I made a joke in the first episode about not using male pronouns to talk about God. And that might need a little bit of explaining. <laughs> for those of you who think that I've lost the plot and gone on some feminist rant. But what I feel about this is that there's so much maleness in how we talk about God. We've got God the Father, we've got God the Son, we've got the Holy Spirit who is often talked about as he still, do you know what I mean? And it's like, well, well, how did we get to the point where divinity was all about masculinity? This is the whole problem, right? On a psychological level, as a man, you're now elevating your, your sex to godlike status. And we've seen how that's worked out in the world. And on the flip side for women, you don't even exist alongside divinity. And this is interesting to me because in my research around traditional African spirituality, you don't see this, this gender binary when it comes to divinity. There's so much space for femininity with the divine. There are goddesses, there are deities, there are mythical figures who are heroines, who are female. And so there's this beautiful embrace of the feminine. And this is something that I think we're really missing out on in Christian theology, particularly Protestant theology, because at least the Roman Catholics have Mary, who who brings a kind of femininity into what it is to be holy and sacred. Whereas I think for those of us who were raised Pentecostal, all of our heroes are men, and so and all of the all everything we talk about in terms of divinity is always male. So. Of course, the argument comes back, you know, Jesus calls God the Father, so we should call God the Father too. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. If it works for you, then fine. I don't think we have to be bound by only talking about God as Father, partly because Jesus uses other feminine metaphors to talk about God, like a hen who's looking over her chicks. You know, that's a feminine image. It's a hen, but you know, it's still it's still female. And so I think that, so the point I'm making is that if if talking about God as Father is a barrier to somebody's spiritual life, I don't think we have to force it. The point is we can't avoid using language to talk about God. We have to use something. The only tools we have to talk about God are our own human words. And the only tools we have to talk about the relationship God has with us or that we have with God is 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 our human language for our own relationships, father, mother, sister, brother, friend, whatever it might be. There's always going to lim- be limitations to using our language to talk about God because the language we've used has been to talk about ourselves and our relationships. So I'm not saying you have to call God mother, but I, I remember being on a panel with another theologian who talked about God who is mother and father to us. That was beautiful to me because it just like, expanded our imagery for how we imagine God as not just male. And I do think that this, I think, is healthy for us because we actually begin to see divinity within the feminine, not just within the masculine in terms of our metaphors and our use of language. 
But as somebody who has really helped me to think through these questions of God and how we talk about God in the in, in the matter of gender, who has really critiqued what she says is a kind of very sexist translation that we've all had to deal with for centuries. Wilda Gaffney is a womanist, a black feminist biblical scholar, and she combs through the Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament, in order to look for the, the original gender and language is used to talk about God. And in her work, she's saying, you know, the spirit at least should not be talked about as male because in the Hebrew, there's a whole range of, of pronouns used for the spirit. There's, there's male pronouns, yes, but there's also the feminine form of pronouns. There's also the neutral form of pronouns, which is no gender at all, which is used to talk about the spirit in the Hebrew at different times. So she's saying, at least with the spirit, if we've got the father, we don't want to give that up. And we've got Jesus, the son, which obviously we can't change. You know, the spirit is where we could actually be more inclusive of the feminine, because even the scriptures give us the option to talk about the spirit as she. I've done this before in talks and the response is so aggressively against it. And I always just think, ask yourself, why are you so angry if I ascribe femininity to God? Just ask yourself the question. If the evidence is there in the Hebrew, then why are you so angry? Why are you so resistant? Now, I'm not saying there's a problem with talking about God as father. For lots of people, it's really quite comforting, as I've said. Whether you've known your dad or not, you've got a relationship with your dad or not, you, lo- you like your dad or not, you know, having the, this divine father in the sky who, as we often talk about it, will give you the treats that you, that you want to have. Like this, this can feel quite appealing. But the problem is that in reality, that's not how it works. <laughs> And I say this having having walked with this God or having had this God walk with me, depending on how you see it, for many years of my life, it's not like this. And, and here we reach the limits of our human language, which is why I say God must be the worst father in the world, because by the standards by which we measure fathers, God is not doing a good job. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm just going to say it as I feel it and we can get into the nuances of this. I really hate the song Good Father. Good, you know the one. I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> I might sing later on in the podcast if I'm if I'm feeling braver. But but my thoughts are a little bit crusty this morning, so I'm not going to do it. I know that lots of people love it, and my mum could like she rinsed this song because it was one of her fa- one of her favorites, and that might actually be why I hate it because I watched her get sicker and sicker and sicker, waiting for this good father of hers to do something, and he didn't. So I have a lot of issues with this song because of the expectations that it sets up, especially because in conversation with my mom, when I was listening with her and talking with her and trying to draw on what I could to help her process what she was going through, this song began to haunt me because it was like, what good father, you know? I have a dad who I like most of the time. (laughs) I love him all the time. I love him all the time, but we've had our moments and I can't really imagine him letting me go through real pain when he could actually stop it. My dad doesn't cuddle people. Like if people who know my dad are probably laughing right now. My dad is not the kind of cuddling kind of dad. My mom was the nurturing cuddling person. He will not rescue me because he wants me to grow. He wants me to learn to stand on my own two feet. I've had to dig myself out of holes at times. He's not going to save me from everything and he's going to give me space to find my way. And this is good parenting. But there is a line with him whereby he knows if I really need something, my dad will come through. Like he's not going to leave me there in a bad situation 
that he can save me from. And I must say that I, as I've lived and seen it, God doesn't operate from the same perspective. By our own human standards, if we have the ideal, the idea of a good dad and we compare it to God, we'd probably be calling social services. Do you know what I mean? Because we'd say, you know, this parent is a bit neglectful. We've got a person here who's experienced their illness, trauma, being abused or whatever and God has not actually intervened and and done anything about it and we'd we'd want to remove that child to a safe home where the parent was actually going to do what they could to protect that child and many of us I imagine can draw on examples of this happening where we think actually we wish that we had the kind of good father who would have stepped in and done something when we cried and prayed and begged and nothing happened to resolve what was going on And so this is why I hate the song Good Father, because I just think it's not truthful to what we actually experience. Now, I just want to pause here for the saints who are getting quite nervous. Stick with me. (laughs) But the reason why I say this kind of thing is because I also feel concerned about how this contradictory image of God can impact what we then expect from other people. So we learn to talk about God's love as a love that actually can be a little bit withholding. How does having an image of God who withholds protection or withholds love from us then impact our expectations of people we're in relationship with? If we have the the image of a God who's coercive, by that I mean that God kind of persuades us into doing things by threatening us with punishment or violence or failure. Like how how does that not then translate into us accepting that in our human relationships? These are kind of things that I think about. For every woman who stayed in a relationship with an abusive man, is she doing that because psychologically she's been conditioned to think that love comes with pain? These are the kind of things that bother me at the moment. Again, I don't have all the answers, but I'm I'm just asking us to think through some of this stuff together. And maybe you all might have comments or things you want to say in response. And having said all of this though, I've also had experiences where it feels like God is super close to me like a really really good father this is the this is the contradiction like I've had moments where I've walked into a room and I felt this absolute joy and peace just flood my soul in a really unexpected way I've I've had experiences of being aligned with the right job or relationships at the right time that I think only God could have enabled this to happen because with all my hard work I can't control all the different factors that would have made this work there are things beyond my control And so I'm having to wrestle with all of that. And I don't know what to make of all of this, to be honest. But I do think one of the problems is the language and the expectations that they create. I think sometimes in a a bid to convert people or to keep people engaged with God, we've kind of sold a very nice but totally unrealistic idea of God and who God is. That isn't really honest and true to what we actually experience. And this then sets people up for huge disappointment. And some of what I think I've had to process, and this might be the same for you, is we're processing disappointment. We're processing expectations being given to us in the preaching that we've heard, in what we were told about God, in what we were told about the Christian life or the life of faith or the spiritual life. And in our experiences, it's so far from what we were told was going to happen. And that doesn't mean that we don't still believe that God might act and intervene. I still reserve a a, a space for God to surprise me because I know that this is something that I I know happens. But I also can't bet everything on the fact that God is going to surprise me. (laughs) It's It's treading a difficult line. 
So now I think of God as creator and as sustainer of creation. And, and that includes me, but it doesn't revolve around me. And this is really helpful because one of the things I think we can struggle with is when we have a, a sense of the world of reality that revolves around us, it means that we end up thinking that every suffering that we have is personal. Everything that we go through that's difficult is a personal attack against us. And actually we are, t- we are part of a whole creation that is nowhere near what it needs to be. We are in a world where sickness is a real thing that we all have to contend with, either in our own bodies or in those around us. We live in a world where we're dealing with huge inequalities of exploitations of various kinds. We're bound up in systems of oppression in terms of capitalism and greed and the way that we have people around the world who are forced to work in inhumane conditions in order for us to have really nice electronic products that we're bound up in these systems. And so I think it's important, I think especially for those of us who live in in the wealthier parts of the world, we can really obsess about ourselves in the sense that if anything bad happens to us, it's a personal attack. But actually, if we see ourselves as bound up in these these patterns, we realise that it's not actually just happening to us. These things are happening to everyone. All around us, there are people who are sick, there are people who are dying, there are people who who do not have what they need in this life. And that doesn't make it better but it means that it's not personal. We get unexpected horrors in this life, but we also get beautiful surprises. And we can't control what we get, even through praying. And I'm more and more convinced that for some of us, prayer has been taught to us as a kind of control mechanism. Because we long for stability and safety and control, prayer becomes a way that we do that. So now we can't control everything, but we try to control the one who we think can. And then prayer becomes this this like transactional situation that we're in. And then when it doesn't work out, we get angry because our expectations haven't been met. But when I think about this whole idea about God as father, I think that actually if God is a father and we are God's children, then we are grown children. We're grown adult children. We're not babies. And this, I think, is a big difference. We can get really disappointed if we expect God to pick out our clothes put us in a higher chair, carry us everywhere, keep us cosy and warm from all the elements. But as adult children, we can always reach out for help and guidance. But in our day-to-day life, we start by knowing that we are beloved and we have all we need from God to live in this world. And then we move through the world accordingly. We use our agency, we take responsibility, we exercise our capacity to choose, and then we deal with the consequences and God's grace will help us with those. We learn to cope with the unknown, to feel fear and to do it anyway. We find our voice, we hear the whispers of God and we use our power to create goodness for ourselves and others. We become co-creators. But Christian theology, I think, has infantilized us, especially those of us who are women, who are encouraged to be childlike in relation to men. We've encouraged so often to give up our agency in relation to men who have allowed themselves to be adults with a will and with a capacity to choose and to create and to lead. But we, on the other hand, are perpetually treated as children. The will of God for your life as a woman ends up too often being tied up with the will of the pastor, the will of the leadership team, the the community which demands your labour, often for free. A partner you might have who doesn't see you as a whole person with your own ideas and, and, and dreams and hopes. I've seen it way too many times. The search for the will of God ends up leaving a vacuum that is filled by other people's senses of what you need to be doing and your own will and your own voice falls to the bottom of the pile. 
And I think part of my journey as a, as a person, as a woman, as a Christian has been to find my own voice. And funnily enough, I feel like this has been one of the things God has been helping to cultivate in me as I've grown older in life. I used to spend a lot of time asking God what to do. And I feel like, and I had a lot of moments where the whisper that I heard back was, well, what do you want to do, Selena? You have, you, you have journeyed through life this far. You've reflected on your journey so far. You have these experiences, you have these skills, you have these instincts, these desires. These are all good things that I've given you. So what is it that you want to do with all of this stuff that you have? And I've been surprised because I grew up thinking that the will of God was like a tightrope over like a fiery pit. <laughs> and if you took a little bit of a step in the wrong direction, you'd fall off into the fires of hell, probably. <laughs> and now I think of the will of God as more like a playground. Like God's will is for us to explore, to delight, to play, to create. And that doesn't mean harm. We don't let kids punch each other on the playground. You know what I mean? Like I'm not saying we do whatever we want. But there's so much more room than I than I imagined for me to play and explore in life. And it has been my great delight to discover that because I didn't grow up thinking that's how it was. And we'll have to do a whole other talk on the will of God, to be fair, because that's another one of these big things that I think can weigh quite heavily upon us. It created a lot of anxiety for me growing up, that is for sure. And of course, if I'm going to fall in a ditch or I'm being led by my ego or by greed, like I want God to help me to see that in myself, and all of that requires my maturity, my capacity to know what I really want and who I really am and to admit where I need to grow and be better. But to recognize that that's, the, that's part of the journey of life and the journey of faith. But it, it means that there's a space then for kindness with myself and a, and a joy and a creativity about life. But anyway, we started off talking about God the Father and love and we've digressed slightly. I wonder whether part of why I loved singing Yes, Jesus Loves Me as a Child was rooted in the fact that I was a good child. <laughs> and my, my my dad would say this, so I'm not, I'm not claiming something that's not true. I was a very well-behaved child and I really liked being approved of by adults and people in general. And this for me was not a thing that I struggled with. It wasn't something I strived towards. I just liked rules. I liked boundaries. I liked clarity. I liked to be able to just say, this is what's expected of me and this is what I'm fulfilling and I'm going to smash it. That was what I liked. I was in the top sets at school for my subjects, apart from PE, I think, <laughs> and something else, maybe maybe design and technology. Again, these, are, these were not to me important subjects, you know, and I was probably not that great in music, which I wish I had been because I have a real love for musicians. Genuinely, I think musicians are probably some of the most amazing human beings that exist, but I, but I digress. I definitely was happy to be a teacher's pet and a good child, a good oldest child. I was doing all the things at church. I was leading the small group. I was preaching. I was doing the on the worship team. And it felt like a privilege, really. I was confident on this basis that I was living as God wanted and that I was loved by God. I, I never woke up a day thinking I wasn't loved by God. But I noticed at the same time that there were other people who were kind of not in that same place. There were people who kind of got the side eye or were kind of seen as those kinds of young people, you know, and I look back now and I wonder whether I was part of the problem. Like, was I ever that person giving a side eye? I hope I wasn't, but sometimes you don't remember yourself as you really were. But I remember thinking I didn't want to be in that camp of people who were looked upon as not being serious about their faith and, 
you know, who were kissing boys, God forbid. These were the things I didn't want to be associated with. I remember wanting to go to a club once when I was like 19 and feeling like I couldn't go because what if somebody saw me? Bunkers. But anyway, social expectations, I think can be really intense and can really not, not give you space to breathe. And what we find, I think, is mixed signals about God and God's love towards us because of this. So on the one hand, it said that God loves us. But we learn from other Christians sometimes that we're loved as long as we present in a certain way. And the words and the signals we receive from others can often make it clear that we're not yet loved, but we will be when we arrive at, you know, version 161 of our original selves, when we've evolved to a certain position or a certain way of being. And this, I think, is so, so, so damaging. And it's sad to me because it's just such a a huge gap between what it is for us to be loved as God's children. Even if we are adult children, we are still beloved. And I think it annoys me as well when people experience difficulties in church or church church people being really mean and people say, well, you know, that's nothing to do with God. It's just people. And it's like, well... Is it really that straightforward? I mean, we don't really make that huge distinction most of the time. Like we cultivate an expectation that we're in a holy community where we are the body of Christ, where the spirit of God is is filling everybody and people are speaking God's words and they're getting prophetic visions and they have authority and they're preaching and they're speaking the word of God. And we create this whole expectation that people in church are better than people outside. And then when people in church do you harm, you're supposed to then not be surprised that that happens. So we invite people to lower their boundaries in order to embrace other people telling them what to be, what to think, what to feel, what to do. So I think we set people up for harm when we pretend the church is better than it is. And I think it's important that we start to tell the truth about the harm that can happen to people in churches because people then will come with the appropriate boundaries When you set up a a whole culture that says this particular person, for example, is a prophet, they have a special gift from God, and this person's character is despicable, you're setting people up for abuse because that person will give you a prophetic word on Sunday morning about your future. And we never really test those things, do we? We never like go back and check that it's actually what people said, is it? I think we should start doing that more. But anyway, we never kind of, we let people do this prophetic thing And then that same person will come back and say something mean and mean-spirited and ungodly to that person, to someone else. And we expect people to be able to easily tell the difference between them speaking for God and them just being mean. So I think we can't be flippant when somebody does experience harm because some person has said something mean and made them feel unloved in the church. I think we need to admit that we're setting people up for this kind of harm when we hype up certain individuals as being special chosen people of God. And therefore we we don't we stop keeping them accountable. And then I hear a voice from my past saying, but we have to have standards, Selena. We can't just let people do what they want. That's the younger version of me. And I say, well, when has anybody ever grown as a person or evolved by fear of exclusion and shame? Like when has coercion and manipulation ever helped somebody to grow? I'm not Brene Brown, so this is not my field of research, right? But she talks so much about shame and how how unhelpful it is for people and how damaging it can be. And I, I think when it comes to our church life, like shame might motivate someone in the short term to at least present themselves in the way that they know will be accepted. But long-term change in a person can only really come from within. 
It has to come from their own heart, their own desires being stirred up to be different. It can't come by the fear of exclusion, by manipulation. And then I also think, well, who gets to say what the standards should be? The interesting thing for me is that when we look in the scriptures, we find this really interesting idea that God is moving from writing laws on people on stone to writing them on people's hearts and in their minds and for me this means that maturity in life in faith looks like no longer needing like external social pressure to make you do what's right that you get to the point where you can judge for yourself what's right you you operate from a sense of integrity you have a good sense of what justice looks like what goodness looks like what faithfulness looks like in your relationship with God and your relationship with others and you're able to make those decisions for yourself without somebody external to you shaming or pressuring you into doing something that is not even really coming from your own heart. And this is, I think, what it means to have the Holy Spirit is to begin to see this wisdom developing you where you begin to know for yourself like what it is that you want to do, what you need, how you to get what you need in a way that's not doing harm. And, and this, I think, is part of what maturity is. And this isn't something that we arrive at in isolation. I would not be where I am today if it wasn't for the the people who have accompanied me on my journey. The individual pastors, the friends, the, the people I've read in books who have helped me to navigate these shifts in my own walk. So this is not something that you just can turn up with on your own and figure out, I wouldn't say. At least it hasn't went like that for me. But I think we have to learn how to silence those voices that are unhelpful, that accuse us and shame us. And, and lean into those voices that genuinely love us. Not the fake love that Brother Drake warns us about, <laughs> but a genuine love that really is invested in us thriving and being all that we can be. But these cannot be voices that are imposing upon us. They have to be invited out of trust. And this is what I think for some of us who've grown up in churches, we haven't had the opportunity to choose We've been forced to share our lives with people who we don't know and trust. We've been made to tell details about our relationship with life to people who we don't even know because we've told that's what accountability looks like. And what it really has been is a violation of our boundaries. So where does all of this leave us then? The worship team are coming to the stage. (laughs) I think it leaves us with a question about the images of God that we have in our mind. What are the images that you have and do you feel safe there? I say this because I'm convinced that some of our Christian mental health issues are rooted in a conflicted sense of whether or not we are loved and accepted by God and whether or not God is somebody who we can actually trust. I think that some of the stress that some of us have dealt with is because we've been given a set of expectations that are just not honest. And rather than being encouraged to recognise our own agency and our capacity to choose and to create and to make a life, We've been made to feel that we must just sit down on our hands and wait for it to come to us or else be exploited through some prosperity gospel scam to get what we need. And all of that has left us with some bruises. For me, I've had to really silence a lot of the noise about who God is because there are so many different ideas out there. And I've had to tune in and try to really simplify this. So for me, that means, as a Christian, that means that I focus a lot of my time when I do read the Bible on the Gospels, because I really want to sharpen my understanding of the person of Jesus who helps me to see who God is like. And then I want to surround myself and be like one of those people who are carrying on this legacy of Jesus's life in the way that he spent time moving with grace and kindness, bringing healing to people 
calling people to be better when they needed to be, but not in a way that shamed and condemned them. I want to be around those people. I want to be one of those people. But I do this work in nature. I go for walks. Walks are a great space for me to reflect. And so next time you go for a walk, and maybe this is something you might want to do just at the end of the session now, is to just have a think about the images you have of God and how he actually affects you. When you imagine God, what do you imagine? Who do you imagine? What kind of person do you imagine? What kind of personality do you imagine, if anything? What kind of image, what kind of metaphor is helpful for you as you think about who God is and how you've experienced God in your own life? Is it even a person? Maybe it's a tree or a river or something random. And next time you're thinking about life or faith or whatever it might be, try to hold that image in your mind as you meditate or pray or do whatever you do and let go of all the images that you're finding are a barrier for you that are unhelpful. And I hope that it will serve you. I've opened up various kinds of worms today, but we'll keep on talking. So I trust that if I've said anything that's not clear or that you want to hear more about, we'll get to it. But thank you as always for listening. And I hope you have a really great day, whether you're listening to this on Sunday morning or afterwards. Have a blessed day, as the church folks say, and I will talk to you again soon.